Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album, and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. The list of tips reads like a training manual for undercover espionage. Some volunteers may wish to install hidden motion-activated game cameras or tiny pinhole video recorders to record activity. Additional cameras on the street to capture car models and license plates could also be useful. In-person monitoring through the night may not be feasible, but if undertaken, should be done with caution and well-armed as criminals caught in the act can be dangerous. Now, this is not Mission Impossible or even James Bond or even Rear Window. This is a manual for poll watchers in Michigan. And the things being monitored here are drop boxes. The manual that details all these tips, it's 28 pages long, and it was made by a group called Michigan for America First. If you look at the group's website, you can see that Michigan for America First, well, it's actually just an affiliate group. It's a local chapter of a group called the America Project. And the spokespeople for the innocuously named America Project, spokespeople are these guys, former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne and former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn which is particularly concerning. You probably remember Michael Flynn for a million reasons and none of them very good. And you might even remember the Overstock CEO, but the two of them together as a team calls back to one specific thing. In December of 2020, those two men were part of a small group that met with Trump in the Oval Office and tried to convince him to order the U.S. military to seize voting machines across the country. They even drafted an executive order for it. But this time, those two are not marching into the White House and going after the election at the national level. They are going after the most fundamental aspect of our democracy from the ground up. Ballot box by ballot box, precinct by precinct, all over the country. Here is Flynn this past weekend speaking to a crowd of 5,000 people at a far-right Christian nationalist event in Pennsylvania. So my big thing, my big thing, it has been for a long, long time, but particularly in the last couple of years, has been to get involved at the local level. And I use this phrase, local action equals national impact. On your way back home, start to think about what it is that I can do. And honestly, if you can go, if you can go volunteer in a local precinct, that's great. I mean, go do that. If you've never done it, I never did it. I didn't have the time to do it, but this time I said I'm going to do it. My wife and I went and attended the training the other night. It was very easy. It took a little over an hour, some good questions, and we're going to go now, go to our precinct captain. We're going to get on the schedule, and we're going to volunteer. We're going to stand there, and we're going to watch, right? We're going to observe. Local action equals national impact. And this is not just Flynn and his group. This is the new far-right stop-the-steal strategy overall. Just like we have far-right groups showing up to city council and school board meetings across the country, election-denying groups are all focused on the local. There are groups like the Election Integrity Network, run by a conservative activist and former Trump 2020 election lawyer, Cleta Mitchell. They claim to have trained more than 20,000 people around the country on election law so they can observe local elections. Given who Mitchell's fan base is, almost all of those people are likely election deniers. And then there are groups like the one run by former Tea Party activist Daniel Schultz. It's called 
precinct strategy, and it's aiming to get as many election deniers as possible to sign up to actually work their local elections. And then there's just a seemingly endless list of groups like Michael Flynn's, ones that are calling specifically for the physical monitoring of drop boxes and frequently calling for people to be armed while doing so. All of this is coming more into focus as we get closer to Election Day, but we've already known for months the amount of damage this far-right focus on local elections has had already. Earlier this month, a man was arrested in Iowa for threatening a local election worker in Maricopa County, Arizona. He left voicemails saying, I am a victim of a crime. The crime was the theft of the 2020 election. Do your job or you will hang. We will see to it. Torches and pitchforks. That's your future. In August, the Department of Justice briefed the public on the overwhelming volume of threats they've seen against election workers. In August, months before the election even started, they'd reviewed over 1,000 hostile or harassing instances reported by election officials. 11% of those instances met the threshold for a federal criminal investigation. That is pretty easy math. That means the Department of Justice found more than 100 instances of people being so hostile to election workers that their actions might be a federal crime. And they found that months before the election. Google your state and the words election official resigns and the results will likely scare you. In Nevada, 10 of the state's 17 counties have had clerk turnover since 2020. In Pennsylvania, nearly 50 top election officials have left their posts. But all of this does not mean we should be hopeless. And it doesn't mean that local communities and local election officials can't defend themselves. I mean, the law is on their side. Just today, one of the groups pushing for armed ballot box, ballot box washers in Arizona, an Oath Keeper affiliated group called the Lions of Liberty, now a group with an admittedly sort of incredible logo that features Lady Liberty on a golden cloud flanked by two lion's heads. Today, the Lions of Liberty released what they called an official stand down order. They explained that they had been named in a federal lawsuit and realizing the consequences of that lawsuit, the Lions of Liberty have decided to back off. In their words, Operation Dropbox is officially closed. There are still plenty of other groups planning to harass and intimidate local elections officials and voters all across the country, but there are ways for them to fight back locally. This is Mary McCord. She is a 23-year veteran of the Department of Justice. During the Obama administration, she served as the acting assistant attorney general for national security. She is a huge deal at the national level as an expert on domestic security issues. This week, she gave a talk on elections and public safety, not to national elections officials, but to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Mayors. She talked to them about the threats their citizens and their cities are facing and what they can do at the local level to fight back. Joining me now is Mary McCord herself, former acting assistant attorney general for national security. She's now the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. Ms. McCord, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Let me just first ask you, given your background and where we are right now, do you see these attempts to intimidate voters and monitor drop boxes? Is this a domestic terrorism 2.0? 
Well, I think it's a national security threat, right? Because these are threats to the very core of our democracy. These are threats to people's ability to feel safe voting. That is actually participating directly in our democratic processes. And if our democracy fails, if we do not have assurance that people can safely vote, if people don't have confidence in the ability to go vote, if they don't have confidence in uh, the fact that their votes will be counted, they may might quit participating, or they might be too intimidated to participate. And that is when democracy fails. And that's a national security threat, because that affects the U.S.'s, uh, you know, presence in the world. It historically has been looked up to as a real beacon of democracy. And that's partly, you know, why we have been successful economically and um, in many, so militarily and in so many other ways. So, yes, it's about domestic extremism, but it's not just a domestic problem in my mind. When you drill into the national security threat that this poses, I'm interested to understand better how these groups that used to operate at a broader national level, like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, have reorganized and retrenched for the battle that lies ahead in November. Can you talk a little bit about that, how these chapters have changed in the years and months since January 6th? Yeah, and I think it was largely a reaction to January 6th, right? In the immediate aftermath, there was incredible attention on some of these groups and, and many of their members, at least with respect to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters, have had significant numbers of people uh, charged with crimes. And we have a seditious conspiracy trial going on right now in Washington, D.C. against members of the Oath Keepers. So there was a, a need to kind of like put on a new face and change their strategy. And so we did see some of the, the national organizations uh, dismember sort of at that national disband, I should say, at that national level in favor of local chapters. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's not a national strategy. There's not, there's just not like a single puppet master running it. What we've got is a decentralized, localized, very grassroots effort. And I think your clip of Michael Flynn explained it very well. I used a different example with the mayors, you know, focus on county over country, um, take capture your county, then a few, then maybe your state. But Michael Flynn said essentially the same thing last week or earlier this week in Pennsylvania about getting in at that precinct level. Um, and, and mind you, the same disinformation about the 2020 election that fueled the violence on January 6, 2021, that is the same disinformation today, nearly two years after the 2020 election, that is fueling all of these efforts to intimidate voters, to threaten and intimidate election officials, and to try to thwart people from exercising their fundamental constitutional rights to vote. And that's why it really is going to take that a strong response. I mean, part of the reason for talking about this publicly is not to give attention to the bad guys, but to put them on notice. What they're doing is illegal. It is a crime. It is a crime under federal law. It's a crime under state law. It's not protected by the First Amendment. It's not protected by the Second Amendment. What, what, I, as you talk to people about this, you were at the U.S. Conference of Mayors. How, for lack of a better term, how on top of this are they? 
Well, I think it's been, uh, I mean, many mayors and police chiefs, sheriffs, they know what's happening right in their jurisdiction, but I don't think they always um, see how what's happening in their own community might fit into the bigger picture. And also, they don't always realize what tools might be available, what strategies might be available to combat this. And so one of the things that I was doing along with former police chief Chuck Ramsey on Monday was trying to, you know, sort of provide a threat picture for what those of us who are working with private researchers who are paying attention to what's going on around across the country, what we're seeing in terms of coordinated activity. And even again, like there's no one central coordinator, as your intro very aptly showed, you have lots of different organizations, but they're all marching kind of the same direction and they're all encouraging these localized efforts. And so for uh, both law enforcement officials as and public uh, officials of different, you know, local level, state level, federal level, to have a good understanding of that helps them be able to direct different um, uh, countermeasures, if you will. You know, one of which is really in every local jurisdiction. You need to be preparing now and you need to be talking with the, the community. That means your local law enforcement, your public officials, your voting rights activists, the parties. You need to be getting on the same page with, with respect to protecting elections and protecting election workers. And making strong statements about the illegality of voter intimidation. Uh, it's not always going to be appropriate to send law enforcement to polling places because in some jurisdictions that can be even more intimidating than them not being there. So that's why you need to make decisions on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. And of course, in some places, law enforcement is part of the problem. We have a constitutional sheriff's movement right now, which is a, a, a fringe group of sheriffs that believe they're the highest law of the land, subject to no other authority, and they are starting to meddle in election administration. So that's another thing to for people to be aware of and election officials to know. If a constitutional sheriff comes knocking and starting to ask a lot of questions about election administration, go talk to your city attorney or your district attorney or your attorney general about what really authority under your state law do the, do the, does a sheriff have, because some of them are trying to overstep. That the constitutional sheriff's movement is a frightening, a frightening movement in the context of everything else that's happening right here. But let me just ask you one more question about what voters can actually do if they are in the middle of this, if they are dropping off a ballot, if they are at the polls. I mean, what practically is the correct countermeasure if a voter feels like he or she is being threatened? I mean, they should be reporting it. I mean, what we do not want to do by calling attention to this is to dissuade voters from voting. I mean, quite the opposite. But if they learn about things or they see or experiencing things like people following them to their cars, uh, taking note of their license plates, videotaping them, dropping their ballots, making, asking them any types of questions about their qualifications, providing misleading statements about suggesting maybe that, you know, it might be they might be committing a crime if they're depositing more than one ballot. And, and to be clear, that is not a violation of federal law to deposit ballots for other people. It's not a violation of most state laws as well. So, you know, they need to understand uh, that when they see these, this type of activity, they should be reporting it. They should be reporting it to local election officials or law enforcement or the Department of Justice, whoever they feel com comfortable reporting it to. Vote 
and report. That is my takeaway from all of this. Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security and now the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. Ms. McCord, thank you so much for your time tonight. During a trip to Syracuse, New York today, President Biden met with Senate Majority Leader Schumer, where the Democratic leader was caught on a hot mic, giving the president a frank assessment of the midterms outlook for Democrats. In just a second, I will talk to former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about what she thinks of Chuck Schumer's assessment and about what Democrats can do with just 12 days left until the midterm. Stay with us. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Today, America got some good news about the economy. After two straight quarters where the U.S. economy shrank, we learned today that the American economy actually grew by 0.6% over the last three months. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but that is sort of the point here. Right now, the Biden administration is trying to pull off a tightrope walk on the economy. If the economy grows too much, it could drive more inflation. But if it shrinks too much, it could plunge the country into a recession. So it's not an easy balance to strike, and today's news is thus very positive for the country and also for the Biden administration. And there's more. Gas prices have fallen today for the 10th straight day in a row, nearing $3 per gallon in some parts of the country. But less than two weeks out from the midterm elections, the question is whether or not that kind of sound economic stewardship matters, politically speaking, at this point. The polls are tight. Republicans are landing blows against Democrats on issues like the economy and crime. So with 12 days left here, the White House is focused on talking loudly about what Democrats have delivered and what Republicans will not. Here is the president, President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, earlier today. I think the most important thing I can emphasize here is that there is just a choice about where we go from here. Are we going to continue to do the things that will bring prices down next year, that will control inflation next year with the Inflation Reduction Act? 
Or will Republican leaders in Congress succeed in repealing all those things, uh, helping big corporations, cutting taxes for big corporations, uh, and seeing prices for uh, consumers and families, seeing those prices go up? That's the real choice between where the Democrats are headed on the economy, where the Republican uh, congressional leadership's headed on the economy. Can Democrats actually communicate that message to voters in time? Should they be doing more? Could they even be doing more? I have just the person to ask. Joining us now is Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary and an MSNBC host. I never yes. tire of saying that, my friend. Um, so it is a tightrope, right? Admittedly, it's complicated. The economy is complicated. The messaging is complicated. On one hand, there is this good news, right? But then there's the reality. Mm-hmm. We keep getting these data points. Bloomberg reports today that almost 41 percent of households said it has been difficult or somewhat difficult to cover usual household expenses, the the highest since that question was asked in 2020. And the share of people saying it's difficult is even higher in battleground states, Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia, right? So how do you say things are on the right track when clearly for a lot of Americans, they are? It's more complicated than that. No question. Look, I, nobody talks about macroeconomic data, or most people don't. Some people may. Um, <laughs> Jared Bernstein does. Jared Bernstein and his neighbors are talking about it. But most people are not talking about macroeconomic data in their driveways with their neighbors. Right. So good data is good data. They had good data today. What they do know at the White House is what you touched on, which is that it's all about how people feel Mm -hmm. and how they're feeling about the economy. Now, things that make you feel better, gas prices coming down and going to fill up your car and seeing that. And that is a good sign. But the big question is whether this is going to be enough over the next couple of weeks. The last thing I'll say, Alex, is what they're trying to do, and you saw the president do it today, is draw that contrast. I mean, yeah. he says, don't compare me to, you know, the almighty, compare me to the alternative. It's like one of his favorite sayings. Uh, the question is, do people have the patience and the will to do that? And it's not just, I mean, it's not just the patience and the will, though. It's also this kind of trope that exists in American politics, that somehow Republicans are better on the economy, no matter what, you know, reality and facts dictate. And Democrats are better on other non-economic related things, social progress, for example. So he's butting up against the clock, the complicated economic forecast, and these stereotypes, for lack of a better term. That seems really intractable with 12 days to go. Right. I mean, the other piece I would throw in there that I think is a big factor is the Democrats are in control of the White House, the House and the Senate. They control what many people will feel like is everything. So when you're feeling frustrated and you go to the grocery store or when you go to the gas station about the cost of things, you're going to say, who's in charge? I want the other guy or the other girl. Right. And it, it's not always a logical, well, they have a better plan for inflation, which the Democrats do. Um, and that's one of the challenges when you're the party in power. Right. You guys own it. So you literally own it. Um, I want you have been out in the field and getting important data that we should be discussing. I want to draw everyone's attention to some interviews you did while canvassing with Planned Parenthood. It is in Braddock, Pennsylvania. In Braddock, John Fetterman's hometown. Oh, boy. Oh, Let's boy. take a listen to Jen Psaki of the field talking to important voters in this election. Josh Shapiro, he's running for governor. Absolutely. He's going to protect health care. He's also going to protect our abortion rights, which are important as well, because as you know, the Supreme Court just struck down Roe v. Wade and they turned it back to the state. So we are, we, states. That's pretty ridiculous. So what's most important to you as you're thinking about who to vote for? What do you care about Um, most? As a mother of four children, um, 
the jobs. They say that all these jobs are out there, but they don't want to pay enough for you to actually live off of the job. So, you know, I'd like there to be, you know, more jobs available with the flexibility, you know, to be able to actually work and take care of your family and not have to worry about choosing one because I'm in that situation now, you know. I need to go back to work, but I can't afford to pay for childcare. We're probably living off of maybe $400 a week, you know, um, which is more than some people make, but isn't enough for four kids. So what strikes me about that conversation, in addition to feeling a lot of empathy for a mom that is struggling like that, is the way in which abortion is seen as a completely separate conversation from the economic conversation. And I wonder what more can be done to link the two. Choices about reproductive freedom mm-hmm. are healthcare decisions, which have imp- economic implications, but they're also just plainly kitchen table economics right there, choosing to have another kid or not. Yeah, a- absolutely. And that woman, Amanda Rivera, she's going to stick with me for a while uh, because of exactly what you said. I mean, she cares about abortion rights. She doesn't want to see them overturned. She wants her friends to be able to get an abortion if they want to. But she's trying to live her life with four kids and can't afford to go to work because she can't afford childcare. And that stuck with me because it's a reminder people have a lot going on in their lives. Yeah. And to your point, what Democrats really need to do is find a way to talk about this in a way where they are meeting people where they are. And Robin Young, who was the canvasser, I, one of the canvassers I followed around for the day, said exactly that to me. I mean, when they go to houses and you're talking to people in the street and in communities, and you've done so much of this, too, and you know how this is, there's no relationship between how people in Washington talk about these issues yeah. and how you talk about it with your friends and neighbors. And that was really what stuck with me from the day uh, I spent with these canvassers in Braddock. No one was going up to a door and saying, we're going to codify Roe. Stick stick with us. Uh, (laughs) Nobody knows what that means. They're also not going up to doors and saying, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, so stick with us. They're saying, we're for worker rights and we're for women's rights. What do you think about that? Um, And that connection is something that I think is often missing between Washington and communities, which is why it's so important to go out and talk to people. Yeah. And the real world implications of having another child when you're not getting by with, for example, the four kids you have now, you know, the complications of all of that, I don't think have been understood in terms of the national narrative. Then there's also this question, and I, I wonder how you think Democrats should think about this. We're hearing reporting of like blue state malaise. Effectively, multiple Democratic strategists says, say the fear of losing the right to abortion is proving to be a less motivating factor in blue states because voters believe their access to the procedure will be protected by current laws and Democratic control of state government. I mean, we're like, that, could that be contributing to uh, the abortion question not being as motivating and resonant in some blue states where there are weirdly tough races, Oregon, Washington state, California. It, it may be, Alex. I mean, I, I also think, though, the truth is that if Democrats, if Roe v. Wade was not overturned by the Supreme Court, we'd be talking about an absolute slaughter in a couple of weeks. And that is uh, it's motivated people. It's gotten people to register to vote. Uh, and it's it's been an issue that Democrats have made into an energizing. It's like an injection and caffeine into a Democratic Party that needed it. So 
it may be a little malaise in states, and that's something I think people running these these races are very focused on. But overall, without that caffeine boost, I, I think Democrats would be looking at an even more difficult uh, night in a couple of weeks. Some people say we were always going to end up in this place. Like if you looked at the the tea leaves in the yeah. early part of this year, it was always going to end here. What is happening inside the bite ho- by bite house? The Biden <laughs> the bite you're making a bite house. So there you go. Uh, in terms of their communication strategy on November 9th? Well, I mean, if you talk to them and ask them, and I did, they they say we're going to win. They will tell you, we're going to win. We're going to forge ahead and get our agenda done. Uh, But there's a lot of people there, Alex, as you know, who I worked with that who have been around Washington and been in White Houses and Congress before. And they know that if Republicans take the House and they look at the polls, they're not covering their eyes or anything, that what they're looking at is their agenda being overridden by uh, lots of investigations by impeachments, impeachments, impeachments. And while all of that may be completely baloney, bogus silliness, the fact is it will be a huge oxygen suck for the agenda. So while they simultaneously are the cheerleaders, and they have to be, I wasn't surprised if that's what they, what they said. They have to be the cheerleaders. Uh, they are at the same time thinking about what that will mean and what that will mean in 2023. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jen Saki, my friend, it is always good to see you even when the news is not exactly where you want it to be for Democrats. There's still rays of light in the darkness. There are. Let's hope. Jen Saki, former White House press secretary and MSNBC host. Thank you, as always. Thank you. Still ahead this hour, it is not just dog whistles. Anti-Semitism has gone mainstream among Republicans this election season. I'll talk with Oren Siegel of the Anti-Defamation League about anti-Semitism and threats to democracy rising hand in hand. And what happens when the so-called party of law and order becomes the party that is literally defunding the police? Yes, really. Stick around. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Earlier this week, the official social media account of the GOP tweeted this, quote, reminder, Democrats want to defund the police, accompanied with a nine minute video to support their case. Republicans have been running this election season on crime being out of control and warning that Democrats want to and will defund the police. 2020, murder in Cincinnati at an all time high. Homicides are up 91 percent. And Greg Landsman's response. 
defund the police. And if Pelosi has her way, Jones will join her to defund the police. Wiley Nickel even voted against funding law enforcement. Defunding the police. Yep, Wiley Nickel is a defund the police Democrat. A defund the police Democrat. Lock your doors. Which brings me to a curious story out of Texas, where Republicans, through a political stunt, are effectively defunding the police. Yes, you heard that right. Republicans defunding the police. Harris County, home to Houston, is the most populous county in Texas and the third most populous county in the entire country with nearly 4.75 million people. The governing body of Harris County is something called the Commissioner's Court. It's made up of elected county judges as well as two Republican elected seats and two Democratic elected seats. Democrats currently hold the majority. And tomorrow is the deadline for the commissioner's court to adopt the county's new 2023 budget, one that has been proposed by the Democrats. Tuesday was the group's last meeting to sign off on that budget and fund critical city infrastructure. All of this is to say that having a seat on that five-person governing body is a big responsibility, but apparently not to Republicans. Because on Tuesday, the two Republican commissioners boycotted the meeting the last opportunity to approve that new budget, and they were protesting the new fiscal year's tax increases. That's why they boycotted the meeting. Now, the Republicans on the commissioner's court have been playing this game for months. Tuesday's no-show marked the sixth consecutive time, depriving the court of yet another quorum, meaning that the Democrats were unable to approve that new budget, forcing this year's budget to remain in place. And this is a big deal. Here's why. The Republican commissioners in Harris County have now stopped millions in funding increases for really important things like flood control projects, a public health system, and, wait for it, the police. Here's the Houston Chronicle. Quote, the sheriff's office will lose $16.6 million for patrol and administration, including 8.25% raises for frontline deputies. The Harris County District Attorney's Office will lose out on a $5.4 million budget increase. The eight county constables will lose a combined $8.1 million. And to say that this is not the best time to limit law enforcement in Harris County from accessing millions in funding, to say that is quite an understatement. Because Texas, and Harris County especially, are reeling from the effects of a new Republican-backed law passed last year that allows most people over the age of 21 to carry a handgun without a license or training. The New York Times reports that the new law has led to an increase in spontaneous shootings. In and around Houston, located in Harris County, prosecutors have received a growing stream of cases involving guns brandished or fired over parking spots, bad driving, loud music, and love triangles. The Harris County Sheriff told the paper, it seems like now there's been a tipping point where just everybody is armed. The paper continues, in Harris County, criminal cases involving illegal weapons possession have sharply increased since the new law went into effect. The party of law and order, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back. One thing we learned over the course of the Trump presidency is that Donald Trump has some very weird ideas about Jewish Americans. In particular, even though he has a Jewish son-in-law and a daughter who converted to Judaism, he seems to think American Jews are not, in fact, totally American. Like when he was talking to a group of Jewish Republicans and referred to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as your prime minister. Do you think Israel's leader was the leader of America's Jews as well? 
Apparently so, because he repeatedly referred to Israel as your country when hosting American Jews at the White House. He also repeatedly accused American Jews who vote for Democrats of disloyalty to Israel. After the worst attack on American Jews in history, a massacre four years ago today that killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Trump showed up to pay his respects and brought along the Israeli ambassador. American Jews don't have their own prime minister or their own ambassador because they're Americans. Trump never seemed to fully grasp that he was their president. And then there was just the casual anti-Semitism he dabbled in, implying that Jews control things from behind the scenes with their money. During the 2016 campaign, you may remember he shared an image of Hillary Clinton with a Jewish star on top of a pile of cash. Subtle. And all of this stuff. It was more blatant with Trump, but it was part of the same meal that Republicans elsewhere were dining out on. I mean, my God, the George Soros stuff, the evil Jewish billionaire puppet master controlling the world. It's like something out of a 1930s propaganda film. And the Republicans have been running with that for years. So it's always been there. But this moment we're in right now, this feels different and more dangerous. Yes, there is the very public meltdown of Kanye West as he calls for going death con three on Jewish people. And as we learned just today, that apparently Kanye has had a Hitler obsession for years and that he had to be talked out of titling one of his albums after the Nazi dictator, literally calling his album Hitler. And then there's the neo-Nazis hanging a banner over a freeway in L.A. saying Kanye was right. And then there's Donald Trump saying this week that American Jews have to get their act together before it's too late, whatever that means. And the total silence about that from the Republican Party. And then there's the way anti-Semitism has become a sort of animating narrative and line of attack from a number of Republican candidates in this year's midterm campaigns, whether it's gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania with his rich history of ties to anti-Semitic personalities, making insinuations about his opponent's Jewishness, or Mastriano's counterpart in Arizona, Carrie Lake, who endorsed a wildly, publicly anti-Semitic Republican candidate only to quietly rescind the endorsement under pressure. I mean, at least she rescinded it. Several other Trump-backed Republican candidates in Arizona never did. And it's not just the top of the ticket candidates either. This kind of stuff filters down. In Texas, the railroad commissioner is a Republican running for a re-election. His Democratic challenger happens to be Jewish. Here is how the Republican railroad commissioner capped off his pitch to voters on local TV this week. My name is Wayne Christian. I'd appreciate your vote for railroad commissioner. Go to ChristianForTexas.com and just remember to vote for the only Christian by name on the ballot. Nice. I see what you did there. The only Christian by name. But here's the other thing about what's happening with all this stuff. It is not a coincidence that all these folks who are dealing in anti-Semitic tropes, from Trump himself down through all his MAGA candidates across the country, that they are also election deniers, that they are also pro-authoritarian, open in their admiration for authoritarians like Viktor Orban in Hungary. It's not like these are normal conservative politicians who just happen to have an anti-Semitism problem. Autocracy and anti-Semitism always, always go together. One look at the history of Europe, or even just at, at the present of Europe, will tell you that. But now that insidious, potent brew is here in America. Joining us now is Oren Siegel, Vice President of the Center on Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League. Mr. Siegel, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Does this moment feel different to you on the outside, to me, 
to those of us who are just watching the news cycle, it feels as if things have gotten extraordinarily more dangerous. The Jewish community feels very vulnerable. I mean, you just commented in a whole series of way that public officials and entertainers are normalizing anti-Semitism. And it's coming at a time where we have documented anti-Semitic incidents targeting the Jewish community nationwide. Vandalism, harassment, assaults are at an all-time high. The last year that we did a full audit, it was 34% higher than the previous year, with violent incidents especially going up. So it's in that atmosphere that we have entertainers who reach more people on Twitter than there are Jews on the planet Earth where we have former presidents who are lecturing the Jewish community about what they should be doing. It's no surprise Jews are not feeling comfortable. And today, as you mentioned, the fourth anniversary of the deadliest attack against the Jewish community in American history, Jews are asking themselves, what is going on? Yeah. Do you see this anti-Semitism as a poisoned a poison that's cropped up on its own, or do you see it as a natural extension of the authoritarian embrace that you see in certain uh, neocon right-wing circles? You know, I think a lot of the anti-democratic efforts that we see in this country, efforts to undermine our democratic institutions, are based on conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And conspiracy theories, eventually, the more that you dig in, you'll find anti-Semitism there, At their right? Root. It's the lifeblood of conspiracy theories. So normalizing uh, anti-democratic movements, conspiracy theories, in some ways normalizes anti-Semitism because it's never far behind. But the second issue is the ability to reach people faster and more quickly than any other time in human history through social media. Mm-hmm. That is a normalizing factor where people don't even just espouse anti-Semitism, People don't even recognize it when it happens. That's ultimately the most scary. Did you, I mean, I I was concerned when I saw that Viktor Orban was speaking at CPAC, that the mainstream of the Republican Party has embraced someone like that. Did, I mean, how, how do you reconcile that kind of establishment Republican response to someone like that in a moment when we are combating such toxic, racial, anti-Semitic language and behavior? It's inexplicable. And, you know, it's not unique. Mm -hmm. It's not creative. It's ignorant. It's dangerous. And at the same time that we see CPAC events, we have elected officials going to extremist events, Mm -hmm. literally, that are timed to be at the same time and further normalizing that. You know, if I could explain it, maybe we'd have an antidote. But we know, especially on the fourth anniversary, we have to recommit ourselves to the families and the victims of that crime and say we need to stand up and speak loudly and clearly and hold people accountable who normalize this hate. What Hold people accountable. What happens if Carrie Lake it wins her race in Arizona? Doug Mastriano may not win in Pennsylvania, but the idea that people who embrace anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic actors and principles, I mean, what are the implications there for this country? First of all, I want to say anti-Semitism is certainly not the sole domain of any one political party or any even extremist movement. Unfortunately, it's the glue that finds strange bedfellows, Mm -hmm. you know, finding common cause. Um, But what we need to do is what we saw, frankly, a little late in response to uh, yay, which is have corporations, celebrities, social media, everyday people say this does not represent us. Stop the normalization of anti-Semitism and hate. That'll be a good start. 
Yeah, and presumably not vote for those people as well if they're embracing anti-Semitism. Oren Siegel, Vice President of the Center on Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks. Coming up, yesterday, Tesla CEO and world's richest man, Elon Musk, visited Twitter's office to assure the staff that reports about him firing 75% of the Twitter staff if he took over, that those reports were not true. Well, tonight, Elon Musk has taken over and he has started firing at least some of the staff. That story and the big changes that might be afoot, that's coming up next. Breaking news tonight is it appears that Elon Musk has sealed the deal to take over Twitter. CNBC's David Faber was the first to report tonight that according to unnamed sources, the deal is done and the current CEO and CFO of the social media giant have left the building and will not be returning. The Washington Post reported that the two executives were fired, along with two others, including the head of legal policy, trust and safety. Tomorrow is supposed to be the deadline to finalize Musk's $44 billion acquisition or face renewal of the lawsuit that was meant to force him to make good on his offer to buy Twitter. So the on-again, off-again Elon Musk era appears to actually be beginning for real this time. And it appears that Musk will get the opportunity to use a sink he was seen carrying into Twitter headquarters yesterday for reasons that remain unclear. And this morning, he tweeted a message to advertisers using way more than 280 characters, I must add, where he promised that, quote, Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. Musk has already fired the head of legal policy, trust, and safety, so we will see about that free-for-all hellscape promise and whether a certain Twitter account that once coined the term Kofevi is coming back. That does it for us. We will see you again tomorrow. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album, and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life.